staying up here. I'll go ahead and invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Uh, so Christmas is right around the corner, uh, hopefully getting some of your Christmas shopping done. Uh, we are working our way through a series called The Beauty of Christmas. And what we're doing each week is just looking at different facets of the Christmas story. We're just taking the, the Christmas story and holding, up to the, holding it up to the light and just looking at how God's glory shines all throughout it. Two weeks ago, we looked at the plan of Christmas uh, as we were looking at the genealogy of Jesus, and we saw that God has been faithful all throughout the Old Testament to keep his promises and bring forth a Savior. Uh, last week, we looked at the mission of Christmas, the fact that Jesus came, and the purpose was that eventually he would one day go to the cross, where he would pay the penalty of our sins, standing in your place and my place, so that we could be forgiven. Uh, and now today, we're going to be looking at the anticipation of Christmas, and we're particularly going to be looking at two individuals and how they were longing for the day that Christ would come. And if you remember, Christ is the word that means the anointed one. It's the Messiah. It's the one whom when we're in the Old Testament and we're looking for the one who's going to bring the hope and the joy and the comfort to God's people, that is the Christ. And so we're, we're going to be zeroing in on two people today and what we learn about them as they speak and they tell us about the Christ. And so I want to go ahead and invite you to stand. We're going to be reading Luke chapter 2, verse 21 to 38. Here at Timberline, we stand at the reading of God's word, and we do so because we believe God's word comes to us as a gift from God inspired by his spirit so that we would know God and that we would be trained and equipped in righteousness. Verse 21, and at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or, or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed him and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your soul also, so that, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father, 
Father, as we look at this text today, which you have given us, God, may our hearts be made well. Lord, may we be full of joy as we see that your Son is the Christ, the one who has come to bring forgiveness of sins to all peoples of all tribes and nations and languages. And Lord, we, we rejoice that you have sent your Son, and yet we also know that he is rejected by many. And so, Lord, may we, may we proclaim the truth of your Son in this world. Lord, give us wisdom as we look at your word today. Give us understanding. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Um, I want to start just kind of zeroing in on verses 21 through 24. Uh, we see that Mary and Joseph, they're following the Old Testament commands regarding circumcision, purification, and presentation of the firstborn child. Now, circumcision is a sign that God gave to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 17. And it was an external sign of belonging to God's people. And then in, in verse 22, we see that uh, Mary is coming to offer a purification offering. Forty days after a mother would give birth, they would come to the temple and they would do an offering. Here we see she does two turtle doves, uh, which most likely indicates that they were not wealthy, but rather poor. And by offering this, she would be counted clean or pure after of having gone through the birthing process. We also see in verse 23 that they're about to present their son before the temple because he's the firstborn son. And in all of Israel, all firstborn sons were dedicated to God. They belonged to God. But only the sons from the tribe of Levi actually served within the temple. So all the other sons would be brought, and then the parents would give five silver shekels as a way of redeeming their son. And so we see that Mary and Joseph are coming to the temple following these Old Testament laws. Now you might say, why is that important though? Like why, why is it that Luke chooses to give these details? And we could probably give, give many answers, but I think one answer is Luke is trying to give a, an account of Jesus and help Theophilus, a guy he's writing to, to truly understand that Jesus is the Christ, the one whom God has sent. He's rooting the birth of Jesus in a particular point in history. Jesus is not just some mythical person who, who showed up, but he appeared in the first century Jewish culture with Jewish parents experiencing life as a Jew, following the Old Testament laws, and yet we know that he's more than just a typical Jew. You look in verse 23. And when it's talking about the presentation of the firstborn son, and it says, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Now just think how much more true those words are of Jesus than any other child who's ever been born. So yes, he's, he's a Jewish boy brought up in a Jewish family and Jewish culture in the first century, and yet there's far more to him than what we understand at this moment. And what we're going to see is that Jesus is fully devoted to God. He's in fact the only one who has ever come fully devoted to God. And as we move through this text, what we're going to do is we're going to come into Anna and Simeon and, uh, and as we look at their words, we're going to see who this Christ is and what it looks like for one who is fully devoted to God, the Christ, 
the Son of God, the Messiah to come, and what effect will he have on this world? And so that's what we're going to be looking at. And these two figures, Simeon and Anna, they're in anticipation of the Christ. That's how Luke begins to present them. In fact, we see that they're longing for Christ to come. And so what I want to do is just look at what, how does Luke describe them first, and then I want us to look after that, look at the words that they actually speak. And so Luke describes Simeon by pointing out his character, and he says he is a spirit-filled, righteous man, devout, meaning God-fearing, fully committed to God, and he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. What that means is he's looking at the Old Testament promises. He's looking at the scriptures that they have, and he says, there's one who is coming to bring hope. There's one who is coming to restore God's people. There's one who's coming to save, God, to save the people of God. So he's looking for that one. And then we have Anna. And Luke doesn't really focus on her character. Rather, he gives us some information about her ancestry. And then he tells her, he tells us about how she has lived since the death of her husband. And we see that she comes from her father's Fanul, who likely he was a teacher of Jewish law. Uh, possibly the one who taught Gamaliel, if you're familiar with that, the one who taught Paul. Uh, she comes from the tribe of Asher. But then we see that uh, she was married, and now she's widowed. Most girls would be married around 13 to 14 years of age. Isn't that kind of crazy? You just imagine that. Uh, and, and so seven years later, we read that her husband died. So she's roughly 20 when her husband died, and so she remains a widow from that point. And she either remains a widow till she's 84 or 84 years past that. So she's either well into 100 or she's 84 years old. Regardless, she's an older woman who has remained within the temple after the death of her husband, living fully devoted to God. In fact, uh, Luke wants us to know that every day she's there worshiping and fasting and praying to God. So we have these two figures, and, and they're functioning in a sense like these, these watchmen. And they're looking out over the horizon, but they're not looking uh, like the watchmen would on a tower for the enemy so that they might come and tell, tell Israel so they'd get their troops ready or be in fear. But they're looking for the Messiah. They're looking for the Christ, the one whom the Old Testament has been promising about, the one who's to bring hope and consolation to Israel. So that's who they're looking, out, uh, looking for. And now we're going to see what happens when they see Jesus. When they see the Christ, the one whom all the promises are coming true through. And so uh, they're going to kind of answer the question, what does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? And the first thing that we see when we look at Simeon, starting in verse 28, when Simeon sees Jesus, he grabs Jesus, takes a hold of him. Now just, I'm sure this was much more acceptable in first century and in, in Jewish culture. Uh, probably not going to happen here as easy. Uh, but he sees the baby, he comes, and he grabs the baby, and he holds the baby up, and he says that now he can depart in peace. What we see in verse 26 is that most likely he had received some type of oracle that he would see the Christ before he died, and now it has happened again. God has proven his faithfulness once again. He sees the Christ, and so as he holds the Prince of Peace in his hands, his soul is at peace and says, I, I can die now. And then he tells us why. For my eyes have seen your salvation. The word for operates as the word because. 
I can, I can die. I can go to the grave in peace now. Why? Because I've seen the salvation of God. So what does it mean when he looks at Jesus and he says, this is the salvation of God? What does that mean? And I think we could at least say two things, probably many more. But number one, Jesus is the only answer to our sin problem. Surely that at least is, is paramount when it comes to uh, Jesus is the salvation of God. And what we understand, if you know the story, Jesus is not coming to construct a plan to save God's people. He's not coming to work with a few other people uh, to create a plan or to have different people play different parts, but rather he is the plan. Jesus has come as the anointed one who's going to bring forth God's blessing and God's rule for the people of God. He's coming to bring comfort. He's coming to bring hope. He's the Savior of the world. And what we know all throughout Scripture is that sin is humanity's biggest problem. It's because of sin that we rebel against God and that we don't worship Him uh, the way we ought to. Or to say it this way, we are not fully devoted to God. Christ is the only one who has ever come fully devoted. And because we are not fully devoted to God, but because we devote ourselves to so many other things, thus we are sinful. And Scripture says because we are sinful, because we don't seek to honor God, because we don't love God first and foremost, that we are enemies of God. We're counted as rebels, and we're destined to suffer His wrath. And if you know, and if you're familiar with the, with the story, uh, as we make our way through God's Word, is that sin does not just affect our relationship with God, but it affects every single relationship that we have. We see this beginning all the way back in the beginning, or in the, in the Garden of Eden, um, when Adam and Eve sin. You notice what they do. Adam turns against Eve, Eve turns against Adam, they both turn against God, they're blaming everyone, and then, and then, right, then they have kids, and then Cain kills Abel, and it just keeps getting worse, God eventually floods all the world, we think, oh, okay, it's been cleansed, and then we have the Tower of Babel, where everyone collectively is rebelling against the rule of God. So what we see is because of sin, our relationship with God is damaged. No longer is it pure. No longer are we devoted to him. And no longer are we actually able to love one another the way we were created to be. It's because of sin we experience emotions like sorrow and pain and loneliness and hurt and shame, angerness, bitterness, frustration. It's because of sin that there's murder, divorce, abortion, racism, bullying, incest, war. And we just make these lists on and on and on. And so when Simeon says, Jesus is the salvation of God. He's letting us know that Jesus is the one who has come to deal with our sins. He's the one who has come to save us. And that's what we looked at last week. If you remember, we looked at last week in Matthew where, where the angel comes to Joseph and he tells him, no, you're to marry Mary. There, we did that again. You're to wed Mary. Uh, and, and the name of this child is to be Jesus. He's going to be the one who saves the people from their sins. And, and we know, as we walk through the Gospels, that eventually Jesus will grow into a man where one day he will go to the cross, where he will suffer and die, not for his sins, but for our sins, so that by believing him, we could be forgiven of our sins. This is what it means that Jesus is the salvation of God. He's the one who provides forgiveness. And when we're forgiven by God, it means that he gives us a new heart, that we would love God, that we would be devoted to God. 
You see, what we've talked about here before is that when we become Christians, it doesn't mean we're freed from the presence of sin. We still experience sin. We still wrestle with sin, but we're now freed from the power of sin. We're not slaves to sin. But now we're servants of Christ, and we're able to serve him, and we're able to love one another. The fact that we're forgiven by God also means that we become new citizens No longer are we citizens necessarily of this world, but we become citizens of God's kingdom, that we would enjoy his rule and we would enjoy his blessing. It means that now we're given a new heart and a new mind, that we would love one another as Christ has loved us, so that we'd put one another's needs before our own, which is why the church is said to be a light into the world, because when the world looks at our relationships, we live differently because we truly love one another. We make sacrifices for one another. We give of of our finances and our offerings and our time and our resources for one another because we've been knitted together in the body of Christ. And Paul says in Romans 10, 9, how it is that we actually become forgiven. And he says it's not something that we must earn. It's not something we must perform hoping to win the grace of God. But he says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He says just believe the scriptures. It's about faith, not about your works that save us. So, first thing that we see is Jesus is the only answer to our sin problem. Secondly, Jesus is the only way to God. Because Christ comes as the Savior that God has provided so that we can be forgiven. There is no other way. Now today, truth has become very, very subjective. Uh, People think that as long as you believe in whatever it is that you do believe, whatever belief system, whether it's atheism or any other type of religious system, and as long as you adhere to your rules, and as long as you are good, whatever good would be, then, then we all end up in the same place. So in essence, they believe there are many paths to God. So they say, if God is on the mountain, you can go up that path, I can go up this path, we can take whatever route we want. But if that was true, would Jesus have come and clothed himself in humanity and gone to the cross where he suffered and died for us? If there was another way, a painless way, a pain-free way? According to the Bible, there's, abs- there's actually no way we get to God. In fact, there, there's never a path that's given on how we come to God. Now, all other religions will say, this is how you make your way to God. And they give you a path, and they give you a set of things. Well, if you do this, and do this, and do this, adhere to these rules, you can get to God. But Christianity actually says, you can't get to God no matter what. Which is why there's Christmas. God comes to us. Do you see the difference there? It's not about us coming to him, because we can't. When the Bible says that sin separates us from God, it separates us from any means of having a relationship with him, of pleasing him, of honoring him, except for the fact that now God sent his son Jesus Christ to come down from the mountain. As 1 Peter 3.18 says, so that he would come where he would die on the cross, redeem us, and bring us to God. That's the good news of Christmas. It's because when we look at Christmas and as we gather and we celebrate the birth of Christ, we're celebrating God has come to us. It truly is what we looked at last week. Emmanuel, God is with us, and that's good because we can't come to God. 
So when we say that Jesus is the salvation of God, we're declaring that Jesus is the one and only way that we can be saved. We're saying that Jesus is the one who satisfies us. He's the one who comforts us. He fills us with hope and with joy and with love. And we know that there's nothing else in this world that can not only provide that satisfaction, but can lead us to God except Jesus Christ. That's the first thing that we see when Simeon begins to speak. But it gets better. Because not only does he say that, that, God, uh, that Christ has come to forgive us from our sins, that he's literally the salvation of God, but then he tells us, and it's not just for one ethnicity. What we see is Jesus has come for Jews and Gentiles. And that is actually really good news, I'm pretty sure, for every single one of us. I don't think there's, we might have some Jewish heritage here, but I don't think any of us are necessarily Jewish. Jesus didn't come for only one people group. He didn't come for people who look a certain way, talk a certain way, act a certain way. But rather in verse 32, Simeon says, Jesus is a light to the Gentiles and he's the glory of Israel. The fact that he's the glory of Israel kind of shows that salvation comes from Israel. So as Christ comes, he fulfills all the promises, which in Romans 9, 1 through 5, Paul talks about all these promises that were made to the patriarchs and the people of Israel. And so when Jesus comes, it's to the glory of Israel showing he's fulfilling all the hopes and all the expectations and he's a light to the Gentiles. Meaning, and he takes the salvation so it's not only for the Jews, but it's for all people. Now today, I think it's interesting, as we look especially at our culture, it is increasingly being characterized by opposition. People are dividing. And when we say, or when I say dividing, um, we, we can divide on issues. A lot of us can divide on certain things, but we're not enemies. But our culture has created a very us versus them mentality. If we divide on something, we're opposed to one another. We become hostile to one another. There's not a middle ground. There's not a respect. But there's actually, we are now enemies. It's a very uh, hyper-polarized polarized culture that we're living in. And so when we look at different tribes and ethnicities and cultures and languages, and, and here in America, we're just seeing more and more division, meaning more and more opposition. So easily one might ask, is there anything that can bring peace to even here in America? With all the, the different types of divisions that we have, with all the types of animosities that are characterized here in America? And I think we, we could honestly just say, no, the world has no answer. Like, it doesn't. We see that on a regular basis. But according to God's word, there is one way, or should we say there is one person who does bring unity, who can bring peace to this world, who unites people of different tribes, of different nations, of different languages, of different ethnicities, of different traditions, and bring them all together as one people, so that we might live as body of Christ in the family of God. All throughout the Bible, we actually see that truth. You, you can't miss it. If, if you just take a quick scour of the scriptures, you see that God is saving people from different nations and different languages throughout the entire gospel. Let me just, let me just give a quick summary. Let's just run through. We'll start in Genesis. We'll end in Revelation. Um, and we'll hit all 66 books. No, not really, but we'll, we'll just do a quick summary. But if you go back to Genesis, in Genesis 12, when God saves Abram, and then later changes his name to Abram, but in Genesis 12, he says, I am going to make you a blessing to what? To all 
peoples, meaning all people groups, not just one people, but I'm going to make you a blessing to all peoples. So here in Genesis, we have this glimpse of God is going to be doing something where he's redeeming a people, not just with Abraham, but from all peoples. And then as we make our way through and we go into the prophets, we see many, many scriptures like Isaiah 49, verse 6, where this is what God says. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel, meaning the servant, the Messiah, the one who will come. He's saying it's too little for for the Messiah, for the Christ figure to only save Israel. He says, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Last week, no, two weeks ago, we're in Matthew chapter 1. And we look at the genealogy of Jesus. Do you remember that? The plan of Christmas. And what we see is throughout that genealogy, we have people, Gentiles. We have Rahab. We have Ruth. Um, likely Bathsheba was a Hittite. And they're being brought in to the very people of God, thus resulting in Christ being born. When we look at the ministry of Jesus, we see him coming and saying this in John 10, 16. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. He's talking to Jews, and he says, I have other sheep that are not a part of Israel. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. He's creating a new people, not just Israel, but a new people from all different tribes. And then he says this at Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples where? Of what? Of all nations. So again, starting with Abraham, there's going to be a great people, and it just progresses further and further. And once we hit the Gospels, it blows up so much more, and we have so much greater clarity. It's through Christ this Gospel is going forth to all nations. And then we get to the book of Acts, and we see it happen. It starts in Jerusalem. And then where does it go? To Judea, and then Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And it's, and it's going, and we're seeing the gospel going into all these different uh, nations. And then in the end of Revelation, the end of the story, we're given a glimpse in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. And, and this is just one of my favorite passages. It says, After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that Simeon is telling us about right here in Luke chapter 2. You see, the good news is that Jesus has come to bring forgiveness of sins for all peoples, all different tribes, all different nations. You see, Jesus is the one who can bring people from these different cultures and traditions, and he can bring peace. And why can he do that? Why, where there's strife and opposition and division, can Jesus bring peace there? Because he is the one who deals with our sin problem. Because he gives us new hearts that we would then live like Christ. We would have the heart of Christ and the mind of Christ. So I just want you to think about that for a moment. If Jesus can bring peace to all these different tribes, traditions, languages, ethnicities, um, he can bring peace to our life as well, right? Like sometimes I think we forget that. Um, during the holidays, sometimes relationships become more tense 
maybe you're reminded even, even today of, of pain because there are people who, who have passed away. And then you come to Christmas and you're reminded of the loss of individuals. Or maybe you're sitting and, and at the table you see there's missing seats or there's, there's seats that are empty. And so you're reminded of, of pain either because of loss or brokenness or for multiple reasons. I know some of you, you're, you're struggling right now. There's, there's difficulties in your life, difficult relationships. There's, there's things you're struggling with, pain, anger, strife. Jesus has come that he'd bring peace and comfort, not just to the nations in this, like, out there type way, but he's come to bring it into our own hearts. And I just think we need to remind ourselves of that, that whatever pain, whatever whatever frustrations that we have, whatever loss we feel, Christ has come to bring peace, to bring hope, that he bring consolation to our own hearts. And he's not a Band-Aid. I think the good news is he's not coming to improve your life. He's not coming to pat you on the back and say, you know, just, just keep going. He comes that he give us a new life. That, that's 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that when we believe in Christ, we become new creations. He doesn't just say, hey, you can make it, but he makes you new so that his spirit would literally dwell within us, giving us hope and comfort each and every day. So I just want to encourage you, if you're here, if you're suffering, if you're experiencing turmoil of relationships, the answer is Christ. If it's at work, if it's at home, if it's, it's marriage, if it's with kids, if it's with neighbors, wherever it is, the answer is Christ. And that's not some weird, just generic Christianese thing. No, it's Christ because that's who he is and what he has come to do, to bring peace into our hearts so that we could love others the way that Christ truly loves us. And so if you're here and you are struggling, I just want you to know that I and others, others who are here, we'd love to pray with you. We'd love to talk with you afterwards. Um, so this is where we're at. So Simeon is letting us know the hope that Christ has come. And we get to verse 33, and we see the, the response of Mary and Joseph. And probably it's something like you and I would do. And his father and mother marvel. They're just in awe. They're like, well, that's cool. Like, they know that Jesus is special. An angel play, or the Holy Spirit placed Jesus in the womb. An angel came and appeared to both of them saying, you know, Jesus is going to be the redeemer of the people. He's going to save people from their sins. You're to name him Jesus. So they know these things. They just don't know what it's going to look like. And so now they're given a little greater glimpse of who this Christ is, of what Jesus is going to do, and they just marvel. Most likely, they're kind of just speechless. It's kind of really good news, and you're like, I, I don't actually have words on how to communicate anything about this, so they just marvel. They probably just kind of sit there in silence and stare at Simeon, not having any clue what to say. And then Simeon keeps talking, because he's not done. He's told us that Christ has come to fill us with hope, hope in this world, but then he's now going to change directions, and he's, and he's going to let us know that not everyone's going to love Jesus. There's actually going to be a lot of people who reject Jesus. So he wants us to accurately understand who this Jesus is. So we see that Jesus is going to be a stumbling block for many. Look in verse 34. We read, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. Now, interesting, you would think that 
if, if the writers were trying to convince everybody that Jesus is the Christ and we all need to believe in him, then they'd paint a really good picture of him. And they would make sure as they go through the gospel presentation that when Jesus speaks, everyone believes, right? Like, that's what we'd want. It's like, well, everyone will always believe. Well, we should believe too. He is definitely the one who has come. Whenever he speaks, the masses fall down in worship. And then we see that that doesn't actually happen. Jesus shows up at Nazareth, Luke chapter 4. Many of you know that. It's one of the first times he preaches. He opens up the gospel. He reads it from a scroll from Isaiah. And what's the response of his own hometown people? Let's take him out to the cliff and throw him off. Later in Luke chapter 20, towards the end, again, now Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's preaching, and the Pharisees want to kill him. So regularly, the Gospels are presenting Jesus in a very accurate way, which actually further proves the historicity of Jesus and its accuracy by showing these conflicts that actually he went through. And so what we see is that there are going to be many people who reject Jesus. And, and really, there's, there's at least two ways that we reject Jesus. Um, we can reject him by outright denying him, like atheism, there is no God. Or extreme forms of Hinduism and Islam and, and other religions that deny Jesus and, and will kill you if you want to worship him. Because they look at that as, as something that is harmful and something that goes against their belief system. But there's another way that we can actually reject Jesus, and it's actually rejecting him by accepting him. And for a long time, um, you probably have seen those t-shirts. They're not as popular now, but they used to be quite popular. Celebrities would wear them. Jesus is my homeboy. You guys remember that? Anyone have one? Quick test. See, I was just waiting for that little hand. Oh, wait, not supposed to raise it there. Um, you don't, you should use that for like changing like grease or something or oil in your car. Um, rejecting Jesus by accepting him is what's known as liberalism. And so it's basically, it's, it's watering down who Jesus is. It's saying, well, he's a great role model. I mean, he's like Gandhi and, and these other great inspirational figures who have gone before us. Liberalism says he's a, he's a really good man, and so we can accept him and yet deny any divinity about him. We can deny that he actually is the one who saves us, and when we deny that, we deny the fact that we actually need to be saved. And we see this all throughout, whether people are outright denying him, and we're seeing that increase in our culture, but we're also seeing this accepting him through re, or this rejecting him through accepting him. We're just watering him out. Fine, if you want to believe him, that's okay. Just do it in your house, in your church setting, but that's fine. Don't bring him out, out to the public. Now, most people, we are, we're all, we're all, we all know famous verses like John 3.16. We could probably all say, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but what? Have eternal life, everlasting life. Um, but unfortunately, we're not as familiar with some of the verses that come right after John 3.16, like verses 19 and 20. And this is what it says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. The light refers to Jesus. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. So what we see is because of sin, we love darkness. This is, this is our world. It's characterized as darkness, and yet Jesus comes as light. 
and when we believe in Jesus, that's why we're called to be light of the world. And so we see that the world is going to hate Jesus. And so while we know there are going to be many people who are saved, we see there's going to be people from every tribe and tongue and nation and language. And so Christmas reminds us of that. But also at Christmas, we're reminded that Jesus is a sign. Not just that many will rise, but that many will fall. Many will reject Jesus. And so we shouldn't be surprised that, that Christmas at school is often what? Termed as winter holidays now or whatever you it's called. We should not be surprised that the world intentionally removes Christ from Christmas. Um, it is not our mission to get department stores to say Merry Christmas. Hope you know that. Don't boycott stores because they don't say that. What does the text say? Is the world supposed to say Merry Christmas? Is the world supposed to embrace Jesus? Is the world supposed to say, well, yeah, we're going to honor Christ? No. What we know from Scripture is that Jesus will be rejected. And so Christmas is a time when we gather, it reminding us of the hope that we have, that Jesus is the comfort, the one who comes to save people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. And yet, he's also a reminder of the sin in this world. And that people are rejecting him, which that should, if anything, remind us of the mission we have, to go and proclaim the gospel. But I think if, if we were to ask any question after reading what Simeon says here, that many will rise and many will fall, and that our hearts, as he says in verse 35, our thoughts um, and our hearts will be revealed. Really, the question is, is what is my response to Jesus? We know many are going to oppose him, so the question is, have we opposed him? Have we believed in him? Have we truly trusted in Jesus? One pastor said, are you for him or against him? And I think if we're not careful, we could all easily just say, yes, well, of course we're for him. But will you rise or will you fall? Have you truly trusted in Jesus? Are you walking by faith in Jesus? Are you desiring to live like Christ? This is the greatest question that we can ask. If between life and death, have we trusted in Jesus? There's no neutrality. Either we, we believe in Jesus, we, we live for him, we love him, or we're against him, and there's, there's no other way. And so I think when we read this, need new batteries. Hello? Is it on? Because my light doesn't work anymore. All right, well, we'll keep going, see what happens. Um, we got to make sure that as we, as we wrestle with the fact that Jesus is going to be rejected, we just don't think other people reject Jesus. Are we good? Hey, there we go. Um, all right, so we're just going to repeat that whole thing again. Maybe we need it. I don't know. But I just ask, where is God leading you in repentance? Even if you're here and you know that you're a believer in Jesus Christ here today, um, do you, is God leading you in repentance um, somewhere in your life? Is there some area that you're trusting in things other than Christ? 
Because as we said, we're now freed from the power of sin, but not from the presence of sin. We're going to keep wrestling. So I just encourage you, let's wrestle with that. As we come into Christmas, let's wrestle with our hearts. Are we trusting in Christ? Or are we holding on to things that we should not be holding on to? And then, and then Simeon turns to, turns to the mother of Jesus, and we see that Jesus is going to be the source of sorrow for his own mother. This is kind of a, a complex, actually, little, little passage here. Simeon tells in verse 35, a sword, tells to Mary, a sword will pierce through your own soul. What's he referring to? What's he referring to? Now, commentaries have lots of different answers for this. And most people go straight to, well, Jesus is going to die on the cross. And, and it's very painful for Luke or for the mother to see Jesus on the cross. So it's like a, a sword or a long spear has gone through her side. Have you heard that interpretation? That would be great if, Luke, if Mary actually appeared in Luke's gospel at the end around the cross. And that was pointed out. But that's not pointed out. So it seems like Luke would have missed something there if he was trying to create something. All right, we're going to see if we can do this. Are we back? Man, that's so much better. Adiel, you're amazing. It saves the day. All right, so we're going to repeat all that? No, um, I think we can keep going. So, Here's the thing. What's the context that we're in? Division, right? Jesus is going to come. There's going to be division all throughout the world. Some are going to believe him. Some are not going to believe him. And then he turns to Mary and says, you're going to be divided also. There's going to be a sword that goes through you. So rather than go straight to the cross and think about the suffering of Jesus and, and the pain that will cause the mom, it seems that Luke is, is pointing out something that Mary also is going to have to wrestle with who Christ is. And actually, when you go through the book of Luke, you'll see that there are times that Mary has come and, and Jesus says, well, who is my mother? And who, who are my, my brothers and sisters? And it's those who do the will of my father. And so he continually is redefining his family. So Mary also has to wrestle with who Jesus is. And so if that's true, which I think context says that's more along the lines of, of what Luke is getting at. There's some type of division that Mary is going to have to be wrestling with I just want us to consider if Mary, the mother of Jesus, saw angels, had the Holy Spirit, placed the baby in her, had Simeon, had Anna, all these people speak to her, and she had to wrestle with who Jesus is, um, then, then let us remember to be patient with people. Let us be remind, reminding that we, we can be patient while other people are wrestling with who Jesus is. Our job is not to force anyone to be a Christian. Our job is, is to love others as Christ loves them. It's to speak and to act in a way that would honor him, to show the glory of Christ. And so if Mary has to wrestle, I, I would say that we probably have a fair amount of wrestling to do. And the people that are on our heart, those who we're, we're trying to share the gospel with, they're wrestling too. So we need to give them space. We need, to give, we need to be praying for them, and we need to be pursuing them in that way. So Simeon has basically told us that Jesus is coming, the Christ, and he's going to save a whole bunch of people. He's going to save us from our sins, from every tribe, tongue, nation, language. Not everyone's going to like him. There's going to be a many who reject him. Even his mom is going to have a hard time understanding who he is. And then comes Anna. And now Anna's going to say, so how do we respond to Jesus? 
Simeon kind of lets us know who he is, what's going to happen. And Anna just says, and this is what we do when we know who Jesus is. And in verse 38, she praises God. Notice that she just starts giving thanks to God. In verse 38, it says, and coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God. So it's assumed then that she also interacts with Joseph and Mary. And that as she, just like Simeon, has, has held the baby, possibly she holds the baby too. And she knows that this is the Christ. And so she praises God. The one whom you have promised has come. God is faithful. He's faithful to send the one who will save us from our sins. Jesus is the one who's going to bring healing to our relationships. He's going to save people from different nations. He's creating a whole new world where one day all who have believed in Christ will fill a new heavens and new earth as we live there for eternity with Christ. And then notice what she does next. She proclaims God's salvation. It says in verse 38, she gave thanks to God and to speak to him, uh, speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Israel. So you get the idea that there's all these other people there, and she starts telling them, this is the Christ. This is the one. This is the one who it's all going to come through, true through. Um, now I just want you to think, the natural response of a heart full of joy is to tell others about that joy, isn't it? When, uh, when, when a husband and wife find out that they're pregnant and they find out the sex of that baby, what do they do? They tell everyone, we're having a boy, we're having a girl, you know, whatever, boy or girl. They start shouting and they, you know, buy blue or buy pink and anything else. When, when a man proposes to his bride, what do they do next? Start making phone calls, right? She walks around like this now. You know? Like, hey, did you see? Like, just letting everyone know. Taken. Married. We, but, but that's the natural response. In fact, if, if the bride didn't do that, if she walked around with the hand in the pocket, you'd kind of be like, what's going on? And she's not telling anyone. The natural response when our hearts are full of joy is that we must proclaim it. How much more when we know that Jesus is the Christ, the one who is the salvation of God, saving people from all tribes, tongues, nations, and languages, bringing peace and comfort and joy to our souls. How much more do we share that news? So I think that's where what Anna is teaching us here. How do we respond to the Christ? We praise God and we proclaim him. And when we look at Anna and Simeon, we see that they devoted their lives waiting for this Christ. And I want you to think, they did this based upon Old Testament promises. From what we would say, from the book of Hebrews says, the Old Testament is like a shadow. And once we come into the New Testament, it's like the lights are turned on. We see everything with much greater clarity. And so as they're looking from the Old Testament at the promises of God, not fully understanding, but now where we stand in history, we see exactly who Christ is. That he is the Son of God. That he goes to the cross where he dies and three days later rises again, then ascends to the right hand of God, like we say in the Apostles' Creed every week, where he now sits at the right hand of God, bringing all things and unity underneath him. We see it from this perspective. And we see the fulfillment of the gospel going out, don't we, to all the nations? Like we're supporting uh, uh, pastors in India who are sharing the gospel in unreached people groups. And we've seen in Lebanon and Poland and other things that are happening here in our church. And we know other churches are reaching many other different places in the world. So we're seeing the fulfillment of these promises 
that, that Anna and Simeon were looking out towards and were now living in. And so if they were living in anticipation of the Christ, how much more ought we to? Because we don't now live in anticipation of the first coming. We're living in anticipation of the second coming. Because we know Christ has come. We know he is redeeming a people. And we know that one day he's going to return again. And so I want to encourage us as we look at Christmas, let us celebrate that Christ has come and has gone to Easter. And now we know there's another coming also. And that ought to fill our hearts with joy and with comfort. For we know that there's a day coming where he will return. And so the proper response is to be full of praise and to tell others about him. And so let's pray. Um, and then we're going to take communion where we specifically celebrate the fact that Jesus is the salvation of God. Our Father, we come to you, and we thank you for the sending of your son, Jesus. We thank you that you have brought him into this world through this miraculous birth. And Lord, that you sent angels to Mary and to Joseph. You sent Simeon and Anna who proclaimed the good news of Jesus. And Lord, I pray that our hearts today are made well as we look and we understand who Christ is, what he has come to do. I pray that we have experienced the peace that he brings in our own hearts. And again, I pray that if there is any, any sin, any anger, any dissension within our own heart, that Lord, we would just take this time even now and confess it knowing that your spirit is in us to provide that comfort, to give peace. And Lord, as we look towards Christmas, may our hearts be made full because we know what has happened 2,000 years ago and we know that there's a day coming when you're coming again. And we are full of joy as we await the second coming. Lord, bless this time as now we take of, of this meal where we take the bread and the juice celebrating that your son Jesus is the salvation of God, bringing about forgiveness of sins. In your name, Jesus, amen.